This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Good Things on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And in Malaysia, it's estimated that about 5,000 babies with congenital heart disease are born every year. Now, while many of these cases are mild and might not even require any treatment, more severe cases would require surgical intervention, which may not be easily accessible to underprivileged families in the country. So that's where the Malaysian Congenital Heart Foundation comes in um, as a non-profit organization to support patients with congenital heart disease um, and their families across the country. So here to tell us more about the organization and the work that they do is Dr. Hanis Shahira Hamdan, its Chief Operating Officer. Hanis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, um, before I get to the work that the foundation does, I think maybe let's perhaps for people who are unfamiliar with what congenital heart disease is, um, could you help us uh, explain what what they are and how it affects the individual both as a child and later on as an adult. Um, Sure. So congenital heart defects or congenital heart disease is a condition where someone is born with a abnormally structured heart. Mm. And I think the key difference of congenital heart disease compared to other heart conditions uh, is that it's something that you're born with. So it's not something that you can get through an infection. It's not something that's lifestyle related. When someone has a congenital heart defect, it's something that they're born with. Um, Some of the most common that people might have heard would be like a hole in the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are also a lot of different types, you know, like people being born with defects involving the valves. They might have a problem with the blood vessels surrounding the heart. Um, And like you said, you know, they range from more mild heart defects. So someone could have a very small hole in the heart, which can kind of close on their own with time. Mm. But then there are also more um, severe defects where, you know, you could have a hole in the heart. At the same time, you could have a problem with your valve and problem with your blood vessels, which kind of require more extensive and more complex surgery. Mm. So in cases, I guess, where it's milder, you say you say they might not even need surgery, so it wouldn't affect um, the child much at all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, some children will be asymptomatic, but mm. um, it's actually still really important that they still get follow-ups because congenital heart defects, um, that condition can get worse over time. So even if it's asymptomatic, you can still kind of have your heart condition worsen in mm. the future. How might it affect them as they continue to grow? How will it affect their daily lives, for example? So because the structure of the heart um, is different, it affects also how the heart supplies blood throughout the body and mm. consequently how oxygen gets throughout the body. So in children or young babies, uh, they might have problems with feeding. Um, they might be a lot more tired than their peers. Um, they would also be a lot uh, slower when it comes to growing and when it's really severe when they really lack oxygen there you might find that their nails or their lips um, turn blue mm. because of the lack of oxygen so that's a physical aspect of it but there's also a mental health aspect where you know when it comes to children having to go to surgeries recurrent admissions into hospitals you know they miss a lot of time out of school mm-hmm. so during that crucial period you know, where they develop their self-identity, you know, missing school gets in the way of them forming relationships, you know, missing out from classes, um, having a surgical scar for some of them, you know, can affect their self-esteem because, you know, why, why do I have a scar across my chest and my friends don't? Mm. Um, and when it comes to being isolated from physical activities, you know, just because of their condition. So that can lead them to having a sense of, oh, I'm different from others. And so that can be also, you know, affect their self-identity as they, as they get older. 
Mm, so it's not just managing. So it's really not just, it's a physical health condition, yeah. but really there's a need to also account for how it affects them mentally and emotionally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey, you know, more so than just a medical condition. You know, you mentioned that this is something, it, it's congenital, so it's something these babies are born with. But how often is it diagnosed, you know, in infancy, for example? Well, actually... Malaysia has quite a good screening program mm. uh, in which, you know, we sort of uh, screen children for sort of very low levels of oxygen at birth and for very complex heart defects. So when they have low levels, um, it might indicate that that's something that's a problem with their uh, heart and they might have a congenital heart so defect. So that would indicate the need for further tests. Yes, yes. But it's quite common as well for these to go miss, especially if they're smaller. Some patients get detected, you know, when they're children, mm. but it's also common to get, you know, to get um, diagnosed with having a heart defect as an adult. Mm. Yeah, and that that's hap- that com- that happens as well. Mm. In some cases where it's more severe, then they might need surgery, right? Um, what proportion of people who are diagnosed with congenital heart defects usually need surgery? Right. So we estimate that in Malaysia, around five thousand children are born with a congenital heart defect um, mm-hmm. every year. And out of those 5,000, we estimate around 3,000 are going to need surgery, at least at one point in their lifetime. And so one in four of that 5,000 are going to need surgery before their first birthday. So um, it's quite common. But again, unfortunately, Malaysia lacks a lot of local data. So a lot of the numbers, you know, that we quote and that we estimate are just extrapolations really from other countries' statistics. So we actually don't know you know, how common exactly it is. We know that it's common because heart defects are the most common birth defect um, in the world generally. Mm. But we don't really know what type is the most common, what state has the highest number. So we actually still don't know that. But we know we do know that it's most common. You say we have screening, but we and yet we don't have that data. Is it so is the information not logged in a database? Yeah, I mean, we, I think individual hospitals have their own databases, but unfortunately, we don't have like a centralized mm. registry. So the information is, is quite scattered. Um, and, you know, we don't really have a national census on how many exactly are born with a heart defect, unfortunately. Mm. All right. Um, so, you know, coming from the perspective of the work that the foundation does, right, you're looking to address challenges that families face. Um, what are the common challenges that you have seen, especially among you know families from the underprivileged community when they have, um, when a child is born into the family with a congenital heart defect? I think it's impossible to talk about the challenges with congenital heart defects without mentioning the financial aspect. I think that's certainly the biggest challenge that a lot of um, parents and families face. If your child or yourself will have to go to a heart defect surgery, parents would probably have to prepare around forty to fifty thousand ringgit for the surgery alone, mm. and and that's you know and that's a very you know high amount to ask from from anybody, and it's not just the cost of forty to fifty thousand for the surgery. It can also rise up very quickly because. A lot of children with heart defects, they might need ICU stays. So staying in an ICU overnight is going to cause a, a few more thousand ringgit. You know, there's it depends on the complexity of the surgery. So it's very common to have cases where a patient, where the cost can rise up from, you know, 50,000 up to 100,000 plus. So this is something that, you know, we see a lot happen in Malaysia. Um, and again, you know, it's not just the cost of surgery or hospitalization. It's also just a typical day-to-day commitments, you know, that a person has. You know, what if they have more than one child? You know, they have to sort out the daycare costs for the other child while they're at hospital with their child with a heart defect. Um, there's cost of transport, there's cost of accommodation. You know, for example, there's no... Um, 
facilities for surgery, for heart defect surgery in Sabah and Sarawak. So mm. for families in Sabah and Sarawak, they would have to fly to Semenanjung, to the peninsula, to get surgery to get surgery. So, yeah, so those are kind of the costs that we expect, yeah. Mm. But wouldn't the Ministry of Health, if they go to Ministry of Health hospitals, wouldn't the, the cost of those surgeries be subsidised? Um, sure, there, there are subsidies, um, but oftentimes, sometimes while the government is able to pay probably about two-thirds of the portion, cost of the equipment, so for example, mm. if they need pacemakers implanted and stuff like that, so that oftentimes has to be borne out of pocket for, for the patient. Mm. Even if it's subsidized, it's still a Even significant if it's subsidized, amount. Yeah, it's still a, uh, still a significant amount because, again, you know, the cost of the surgeries are very high. So, um, yeah. Mm. And I imagine often you would have at least one parent, you know, if, if both parents were working, one parent would have to take time off work exactly. to care for yeah. the child as well, right? Exactly, yeah. And that's, you know, productivity loss, you know, and that's, again, going to affect the finances of the family. And, you know, congenital heart disease, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is probably that it's a condition of childhood, right? A lot mm. of people think, you know, once you get your surgery, um, you recover, and then you're off and back to normal. But but really, that's not the reality. You know, it's really a lifelong condition with, you know, long-term complications. So patients will have to continue to follow up throughout childhood, you know, even in adulthood as well. And that's important because... Um, childhood treatments can lose their effectiveness. So it's very mm. common for a patient who undergone surgery when they were smaller, in their 20s or 30s, they'll have to go to another surgery. Or, and it's common, I've heard of patients having you know, to go to two or three more surgeries after, after reaching adulthood. Um, and their heart condition can worsen as well. So, you know, if they didn't get treatment at the start, you know, they can worsen. So, so again, you know, that's just another financial implication. And, you know, there's more follow-up time, you know, having to take time off to take follow-ups. So, again, yeah, it's a huge financial burden for, for parents. I think it, it's a life-changing sort of financial expense. Mm, and into adulthood, it's a financial impact on the individual. Exactly. Yeah, it's a financial impact on the individual. Um, and oftentimes, we also hear of some... Um, adult patients having troubles with securing uh, employment because mm. of their heart condition. So it's very common to hear them say, well, when they omitted that medical history, the fact that they heart, had a heart defect from the job applications, only then were they able to get a job. So it's really mm. unfortunate, you know, that that, that is the reality um, that for, for, for these patients. Mm. So just to clarify then, you know, with effective treatment, with, with proper intervention and management, people with congenital heart disease can lead quality lives. They can lead quality lives. So in places like the US where they've done studies, about more than 90% of patients, um, you know, who once they receive appropriate care and treatment, they survive into adulthood. So they certainly can lead quality lives. So there's no cure for congenital heart disease, but with good care, mm. um, certainly, yeah. Mm. And really, there is no um, basis for discri work discrimination. There is really. no basis for work discrimination, exactly. Mm. Yeah. All right, we'll go for a quick break. And then when we come back, you know, I want to find we'll find out more about the work that the foundation does um, bo across both Peninsula and East Malaysia as well. On the show with me today is Dr. Hanis Shahira Hamdan, Chief Operating Officer of the Malaysian Congenital Heart Foundation. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Good Things on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su And today we are shining a spotlight on the Malaysian Congenital Heart Foundation. It's a non-profit organisation um, supporting patients and their fam uh, patients with congenital heart disease and their family. Um, and here to share more about that is their Chief Operating Officer, Dr. Hanis Shahira Hamdan. Um, 
Hanis, we've before the break, you know, you you gave us a bit of background to what congenital heart diseases are, um, how it impacts the individual both through childhood and adulthood, and really that with the proper intervention, uh, management, people, you know, can lead quality lives into adulthood with congenital heart diseases. Um, so then, in that context, right? Tell me more about the Malaysian Congenital Heart Foundation, um, what it does, and why it was set up. So we are a non-profit organization. We were set up in 2017. And as a healthcare NGO, our main focus has always been congenital heart disease. And, you know, it's in the name. Mm. And it came about from a need to support and and empower, you know, a large um, and growing group of patients whose, you know, plights and issues are still ignored or or largely unknown. So um, initially, a lot of our activities revolve around financial assistance and sponsoring for surgeries because we find that there is a need for that in Malaysia. And and we still do those programs. Um, But we've also evolved, you know, in recent years to also include advocacy work um, by increasing public awareness and running awareness campaigns uh, because we understand, you know, that's just as important in trying to help increase access to care here in Malaysia. Mm. So um, if we just dive into the financial assistance aspect first, right? I understand you also have a program called Congenital Heart Surgery for All. Um, tell me more about that and how you help connect patients and families to to their surgical needs. Uh, sure. Um, the Congenital Heart Surgery for All program, I think, stemmed from a vision that um, we believe that, you know, every child in Malaysia deserves congenital heart care. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, congenital heart surgery is expensive um, and the costs can continue to accumulate very rapidly. And so uh, knowing this, you know, we sponsor surgeries for patients from low income families in Malaysia. Um, and we're very lucky to be able to work, you know, with a variety of healthcare centers across the country. You know, we um, have, you know, understandings with Pantai Hospital Kuala Lumpur um, for us to expand our services there. Um, and just yesterday, we signed an agreement with Hospital University Science Malaysia in the East Coast, you know, as we try to expand our program there. Um, because there's certainly a need, um, you know, to, to help these patients to get surgery. Mm. So do you work primarily with um, private hospitals or with public hospitals as well? Um, so it's a mix of both. And I think um, in the field of congenital heart disease, it's still an area where there's still a lot of, you know, public-private sort mm-hmm. of um, partnerships because, and I think a lot of the patients that we talk to, they both have follow-ups, both publicly and privately. Um, and I think that's due to, you know, there's just a lack of um, pediatric heart surgeons in Malaysia, unfortunately. So um, in cases where the government hospital needs to refer a patient to a private hospital, so that kind of happens. And and because the waiting list can be quite long mm-hmm. for elective cases, patients can be waiting up to one to two years for their surgery. Um, so for these kind of patients who are kind of suitable candidates um, and from low-income families, then we transfer, sorry, we sponsor their surgery um, at a private hospital. Mm. So I guess elective surg- elective cases for congenital heart disease would be milder cases? Yeah, it would be milder cases where it's still not urgent enough, but still, again, they still need that surgery eventually. It's just, you know, not so urgent. Mm. So how do you connect to families that require help then? What does that process look like? Do people reach out or, or you know, do, do hospitals reach out? Uh, it's a mix of both. Uh, but mostly it's been hospitals reaching out to us. Um, you know, um, they have a suitable patient, you know, because, you know, doctors and the social work department, they really do try and, and help these patients um, get their surgery. So they do reach out to us, you know, sharing the medical documents and, you know, and we do our own financial background check to see if this patient is appropriate. Um, and after that, then we sponsor them for their surgeries. Mm. So 
to, I guess, illustrate this to some of our listeners, right? Maybe you could share some stories of, you know, how the work of the foundation has um, changed the lives of some of these families. Um, you know, maybe some examples and stories that you can share. Um, yeah, I think there was one case uh, which I think probably was the most impactful to me was now this was a sort of an exceptional case because this father had reached out to us personally instead of through the hospital. So he was a um, he's a security guard and he is the sole provider for his wife uh, and child. So his child, his daughter was born with a hole in the heart and unfortunately it's quite serious and she needed surgery quite urgently. So he reached out to us um, and kind of told us his story. Um, his wife um, also had quite a complicated pregnancy. So again, you know, he had to um, spend a lot of, you know, there was a lot of high expenses incurred with that. And then when his child was born, his child was in the NICU. Uh, so there was a lot of charges with that. And he needed around forty to 50,000 ringgit for his child's surgery. And this was a case where it was very urgent. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, he obviously he worked as a security guard. He didn't make, you know, a lot per month. Um, he managed to sort of borrow money from his friends and family to reach that amount to eventually get his children, get his child um, the surgery that she needed. Um, but unfortunately, I think his child had to stay in the ICU for a while and then a lot of com- and complications happened. And these can happen, you know, sometimes because the child isn't stable. Um, and then the child needed a second surgery. And then that was another 50,000 ringgit on top of it. So, you know, you know, um, and so it was a very difficult, it was very emotionally difficult for him. And we were very happy to be able to help this patient. We were able to sponsor this patient's second surgery and the child is surviving. So, um, but I remember it, it was, it was a difficult case because I think it just really shows that, you know, parents are willing to do everything for their child. You know, they, they will go to the ends of the earth in order to get the care. Um, and that second surgery was again, especially urgent for, mm-hmm. for that, uh, for that child. Uh, and we managed to, you know, talk to the hospital and managed to get the surgery um, okay uh, to be done. Mm. How is the foundation funded to be able to sponsor these surgeries? Well, we are an independent foundation. Um, so we're not affiliated or we're not officially under any sort of corporate organization or any hospital. So the vast majority of our funds um, comes from um, public donations, either from individuals or corporate organizations. So we don't we're not a crowdfunding sort of platform. So when a patient comes to us and we accept that patient, then we already have the funds allocated ready to be used um, instead of crowdfunding from patient to patient. Mm. All right. Um, you mentioned that the other part of the work that the foundation does now includes advocacy, right? And I um, was looking at your website. The foundation publishes a series of stories called Vira Jantong. So I, I'm assuming that's part of your advocacy work. Um, yeah. Tell me more about the that. So Vira Jantong. Um, so is a translation of heart hero, basically, where it was important that we found to share the stories of patients. You know, I think a lot of people's experience with congenital heart disease um, or congenital heart defects are very one-sided, mm-hmm. oftentimes in the context of, you know, fundraising or crowdfunding. But, you know, but we know it's a lifelong condition, right? We know that there is more to it than that. So we felt it was important to raise awareness of the public by sharing these stories, you know, showing that, you know, there is a reality uh, behind all of these patients that you see. You know, there's tales of suffering and tales of love from the parents, you know, and all the achievements, you know, that all these patients have gone through. You know, what happens to the patient after the surgery? What happens to the patient after they leave the operating theater? And so Mm. we wanted to know more about that and to share the story, to, you know, show a human side, you know, to these patients. Um, and, And it was... 
and you know we managed to get around 50 submissions and I think wow. it was one of the first campaigns done for congenital heart disease in Malaysia um, you know we had stories of patients who um, have you know overcome all odds you know have gone to achieve wonderful things um, and we had parents as well sharing their experiences of, of what it was like you know when they first found out their child was born with a heart defect. And, and some of these stories that they shared, you know, they were very open and vulnerable about, you know, the negative emotions, grief and guilt that you can feel. But it was really important to share these stories, you know, for other parents to know they're not alone mm. um, and for them to be able to process these feelings. So, yeah, that was kind of uh, our first ever campaign in order to raise awareness for congenital heart defects. Yeah. Mm. What kind of feedback did you get from the public or even from other parents, you know, to read about these stories? A lot of parents um, were told us they were grateful to hear these stories, you know, to know they're not alone, I think, especially when it's new parents. Mm. Because um, so the cause of congenital heart defects is, is actually unknown. Mm. So I think a lot of parents, when they found out that, you know, their child's a heart defect, you know, they're overcome with feelings of guilt, you know, what did I do wrong? But, but the reality is, you know, it's an unsatisfying answer, but you don't really know why it happens. Mm. And so a lot of them were, you know, happy to hear, well, they're not alone um, in this. And, and, you know, when they read about, you know, their condition, their child's condition, oh, this child has the same condition as my child. And they start to connect with one another, like, you know, and start asking questions. So mm. we wanted to build a sense of community as well. Mm, that peer support, yeah, right? Yeah, peer support, exactly. Mm. So I guess in that way, through your advocacy work, you're also helping to support parents, the community emotionally, because it's such a it's such a taxing journey for them, like you said, exactly. right, to find out and then to learn how to manage it. Exactly, yeah. And we wanted to sort of, you know, share the reality of what it's like living mm. with a heart condition, you know, while they're also very inspiring, you know, and they've done wonderful things. But, you know, we also want to share, well, they also have systemic challenges that they face, you know, problems with employment, problems with getting insurance. And those are very mm. real things, you know, despite despite their inspiring stories, there's more that we can do for them, you know, as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, are there any other, you've, you've listed a couple, but are, are there any other misconceptions that you've realized along the way that you want to correct? Because earlier, like you mentioned, one is that people think that this is just a childhood condition, yeah. right? Anything else? Um, yeah, and I think I, I'd like to expand on that, actually, mm. the fact that, you know, it's not a condition of childhood. Um, it's not just the follow-ups as well. Actually, it, it kind of exp- um, sort of affects every aspect of, you know, a lot of patients' lives. So in terms of employment, um, they are kind of limited in types of work that they can do. So obviously, mm. because of their heart, they have to opt for, you know, jobs that are not so labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Um um, but at the same time, when it comes to pregnancy, so for some patients, for example, female patients, sometimes depending on the condition, the doctor might advise them to not get pregnant because of the strain that it can put in their heart. Um, and obviously, you know, in terms of physical activity, you know, it's not so easy for patients to, um, you know, agree to go for a hike or go for a jog with friends. They have to think about their heart. But at the same time, I think a lot of people think that um, patients with heart defects can't do any physical activity. Mm which they actually can do. So in the past, a lot of patients were told, okay, you can't move around so much, you know, you think about your heart. But we're finding that nowadays there's become sort of an obesity epidemic among patients with heart defects. So Mm. actually a moderate amount of exercise is okay. But again, obviously everyone is different. Mm. Um, You know, it's a huge range. So it's important to consult your doctor, but we're actually encouraging patients to exercise more. So that's kind of the misconception. Mm. 
Have there been any challenges for the foundation along the way in supporting patients with congenital heart disease in their families? Um, I mean, we look forward to, you know, working with the government and collaborating with the government um, in order to tackle some of the problems when it comes to access to CHD care. You know, congenital heart disease is a non-communicable disease, Mm -hmm. but because it's not lifestyle related, it doesn't often fit into kind of the framework, you know, when it comes to talking about Mm non-communicable diseases, you know, it's a condition of childhood, but it's not really something that, you know, you can prevent by vaccination or, you know, change with improved nutrition. And as the government tackles more of these non-communicable disease cases, and as these cases go down, because congenital heart disease is a lifelong condition, there's going to be more significant proportion of these patients. So it's really important that the government, um, you know, comes uh, comes on board and and works with us in order to help these patients, Um, you know. Awareness is always going to be a challenge. You know, it's very difficult to get people to pay attention to something that they don't know or they've ever heard of. Um, so it's really important, um, you know, that... that um, so those are kind of some challenges that we face. And again, funding, like mm. you said, you know, we're an independent foundation. So, so it's difficult to... Um, I wouldn't say it's difficult, but it's challenging to, to certainly support these patients. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned that we don't have... Um, the necessary the necessary facilities or expertise in East Malaysia is right. that is that um, and and I guess building on that right do we have sufficient um, expertise and healthcare facilities to you know really address cases of CHD in a timely manner? Well, the thing is, um, say this. Well, actually, I think the biggest challenge for CHD care in Malaysia is definitely human resources. Mm. So there is a very severe lack of pediatric heart surgeons. Mm. Um, There are only seven for the entirety of the country, including East Malaysia, only seven. And in the last 10 years, they've only recently trained one new pediatric heart surgeon. And so a lot of these surgeons are working past retirement age. So there certainly is a lack of pediatric heart surgeons. And so I think that is probably the biggest problem facing um, Malaysia at the moment. Um, And there's also, you know, a lack of, um, you know, pediatric um, cardiothoracic surgery sort of departments, you know, um, building hospitals is one thing, but you need to make sure that these hospitals also have the services available. Mm. So I think that's kind of the biggest challenge that the country is facing. Mm-hmm. It's such a niche specialty, isn't it, it? It is. It's a very niche specialty, probably one of the most niche and most complex. And it takes a long time, you know, to to train these, um, these surgeons. Yeah. Mm. Um, earlier, we were also talking about having a registry, uh, the, the, that we don't have a registry, right. we don't have a national database. Right. Would having, would institutionalizing something like that make a difference in terms of efforts to help, um, to support underprivileged families? Definitely. You know, I think um, I'm always reminded of the Malay proverb where you say, tak, tak kenal maka tak cinta. So mm-hmm. it's very difficult to care about something that, you know, that you don't really know. So I think once we even know how many patients Malaysia has, you know, what states have the highest number, you know, mm-hmm. what, 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 just starting to have that data can sort of tackle the problem because it's difficult to tackle an issue or advocate for an issue where you don't even have the data locally. 
Mm-hmm. And it's and and you said right, hospitals do have the data based on their own registry. It's a matter yeah. of consolidating it. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think efforts, you know, by you know the medical societies are starting to push for it and starting to make it happen. So there, there is effort, there is work being mm-hmm. done, in mm-hmm. progressing towards that. How has working in this field, you know, you you went through medical school right. to become a doctor, <laughs> but then you've moved into the NGO field. I guess has working in this area with these families changed how you view the medical profession? Whoa, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, for me personally, I think I've always been interested in the patient experience Mm -hmm. anyway. You know, I think I've I've just kind of had a lot of fun talking to patients about, you know, their lives and themselves more so much than their medical conditions. So... Um, I think the Malaysian healthcare system, I think the doctors um, and the surgeons, they really do try to do the best that they can. I think they're very aware, you know, of, of the issues, mm-hmm. you know, that, that face it, that face the patients. Um, I wouldn't say it's changed my view of the medical mm. profession. Yeah. Mm, but sometimes it's it's a matter of a time constraints, right? We hear so often that doctors simply don't have the time to spend with patients as much as they exactly, want. Exactly, exactly. So I think, you know, instead of working with our doctors, you know, I work with the patients or the parents of the patients who are coming to ask for help. So it's difficult to... I would say it's difficult. I'd say it's challenging, you know, to become the middleman for mm. for this, you know, where you hear these sad patient stories and try to, you know, try to fight for them. Um, but you know, you understand, you know, there obviously there's financial constraints, time constraints, and even we have financial constraints ourselves as an NPO. So yeah. Mm. Um, so then, for people who are tuning in, right, if they want to support the work that the foundation does, um, what are some avenues for them? Um, you can visit our website uh, at mycongenitalheart.org. You can follow us on social media under the Yayasan Jantung Congenital Malaysia name or uh, on Instagram, it's Congenital Heart Malaysia. Uh, if anybody would like to donate, there's links uh, to donate there and that would be the biggest support for us. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Hanis. Okay, thank you so much, Sian. I've been speaking to Dr. Hanis Shahira Hamnan, Chief Operating Officer of the Malaysian Congenital Heart Foundation for this episode of Good Things. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Good Things episodes, you can download our podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.